0: So, let's start with prayer. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. God, our Father, you will all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Send workers into your great harvest that the gospel may be preached to every creature and your church, gathered together by the word of life and strengthened by the power of the sacraments, may advance in the way of salvation and love through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Amen. Alright, so welcome to the second week of the program Catholic Studies. A lot of you I saw last week. And so welcome back to the second part of our series on Islam. And last week, if you remember, we went through the all too cursorily, went through the history of Islam to try to provide the context for... Today's class, where we're going to go through the doctrines and the practices of Islam. And so, um, for the sake of time, I'll try to stick to the task at hand, and we won't be able to properly digress back into that context and into that history. So, if you missed last week, um, I apologize for that. And maybe we can try, with the Q&A at the end, if we could try to fill in some of your gaps, but also... We are going... I recorded last week and we have podcasts that we're going to be putting on the website in the same... like a spot where they put Father Newman's homilies. But we've been having some technical difficulties all week. So they're not quite up. They're up, but it won't stream yet. So just bear with it. It'll be up there eventually uh, when we figure it out. Now... (laughs) right. Now before getting into the actual let's see people laughing back there alright before we're getting, actually getting into it one thing that's important, we brought this up last week that's important to remember that um, there's a tremendous gulf between how many Muslims actually live and the, what the doctrines of Islam actually teach now if we, like I said last week if we think that Catholics don't know their faith, that for the most part this is nothing compared to Islam um, and this is important because um, a critical inquiry about Islam, when we're doing so, we're not judging persons, but rather we're judging ideas. And ideas are important and should be addressed openly and critically because, as the historian Richard Weaver famously said, that ideas have consequences, meaning that ideas do have lead to actions and so you can't just ignore the ideas for the sake of trying to be polite and that's something we'll get back to later but anyway i just but that is something that's important because it is there is a tendency always to judge okay because there are these ideas we deem them as wrong because these ideas do have serious problems with them that necessarily we're um going to think that every single member of the religion is necessarily a bad person but that is not the case now um so i just wanted to start with that now, first, what I want to start do- by doing is going through sort of a bird's eye view of the basic doctrines and practices of Islam. And then, we can go from that sort of that general bird's eye view to talking more about more specific Islamic beliefs. And then, move into the consequences of those ideas, meaning the practices that flow from them. So we're going to do the bird's eye view of Islam, specific beliefs, and then the practices that come from those beliefs. Now, the first thing when starting with this bird's eye view is that in sharp contrast contrast to the complex belief system of Christianity, um, Islam is a religion of simplicity, meaning that there is no such thing really as Islamic theology. In fact, the Islamic theology can entirely be summed up into one sentence which is called the Shahada, which is simply that there is no God but Allah, and Muhammad is his prophet or his messenger. And this is one of the key selling points of Islam that they've historically used to sell the religion, in that they try to argue that Christianity is too complicated and thus illogical, so just the simplicity of it, that this really is the only pure belief of Islam. And... The Shahada is the first of what are called the five pillars of Islam. And these are the five basic tenets of if you want to like consider yourself a Muslim, these are the five things that you have to do. Now, the pillars, like I say, they, cent- they sum up the central practices of Islam. And it's important to note that in contrast to Christianity, Islam is character- characterized more by practices than beliefs. That strictly speaking, when Christians have a ast- historically emphasize orthodoxy or right belief Muslims have emphasized what's called orthopraxis or unity of religious practice like I said, so there's only one basic belief and then the rest is basically it's just rules, that you, things that you have to do which is what's part of the appealing part of the simplicity of it, and so there's the five basic things you have to do if you're a Muslim the first is you have to proclaim the shahada, which we already talked about you don't have to learn the phrase or the term don't worry and actually one becomes a Muslim by making that confession that there being only one God, Allah and Muhammad is prophet. By making that confession in Arabic um, in a public assembly of Muslims. That's how you actually become a Muslim. And then there's four other pillars that you have to do. There's what's called the Salat and this is based off of the they actually took the idea of the liturgy of the hours from christianity of praying seven times a day they simplified it and made it five times that you pray five times a day and it's a a little bit complicated the series that you're supposed to do but it's very ritualistic even the hand motions and everything and i shouldn't go off too much because i will have a lot i'll fall way behind if i keep doing this um but anyway you have to pray five times a day facing mecca you're supposed to fast during the month of ramadan and then at least once in your life, you're supposed to make a pilgrimage to Mecca if you are physically and financially able to. And then the last, that's the Hajj. And then the Zakat is that all Muslims are called to give 2.5% of their income to the poor and the needy. Now, it's also important that these, well, these are the five basic pillars, kind of like in Christianity um, we or in the Catholic Church, we have... The basic things that every Catholic has to do to be able to consider themselves um, a Catholic in good standing with the church, um, like going to Mass on Holy Days of Obligation, um, etc., those those are basically the bare minimum. And likewise with Islam, the five pillars are the bare minimum. And that um, every Muslim, in order to be a good Muslim, is in fact actually called to follow every rule and example that is prescribed in the quran as well as in the life of muhammad and that's something we're going to get to right now um that for the rules like we said that islam for the most part is just a set of rules that you're supposed to follow that there there's two main sources that they look to for we'll say for islamic teaching for those rules um and just like in Christianity or the Catholic Church, we say, "Okay, we get our doctrines from the Bible as well as from um, tradition." That there is actually a similarity in Islam a little bit, and that the two places where they believe that they receive their doctrines are first of all um, in the words of the Quran, which are thought to be the infallible words of Allah, handed down to Muhammad through the archangel Gabriel, and all that is prescribed in the Quran is thus to be followed. And the second place is in the life and sayings of Muhammad, which are actually that Muslims are not ju- don't just strictly follow the Quran also, but the life and sayings of Muhammad are equally binding upon the life of a Muslim, which is very important if you remember last week when we learned about the life of Muhammad. And so anyway, there, is a, the, there are collections... Of all the lo- sayings and deeds of Muhammad that are in these giant volumes that were collected in the ninth century, and there's huge, vast, there's vast amounts of these sayings and that they collected, and they're called hadith, uh, or the singular is hadith, and the plural is called a hadith. But we'll just call them hadiths because it's simpler, and all, I know I'll lose track if I try to go from hadith to a hadith back and forth. So we'll just say hadiths, even though that's wrong. Um, but anyway. They're from a vast amount of, um, oh, sorry, a vast array of sources from early people that knew Muhammad, supposedly, etc. And, like I said, and it, that if you were to take them, they fill up volumes and volumes and volumes. Now, th- these um, Hadiths, are, they form sort of the basis of Islamic law because the Quran states that Muhammad is the supreme example of conduct to be imitated and so since they are the the source that I tell about the life of Muhammad and the sayings of Muhammad apart from just the Quran like I said they're also to be followed just as much as the Quran now one of the big things though is that there are huge disputes over which are the true Hadiths and which are the forgeries or the fake Hadiths. In fact, there are over actually 300,000 different Hadiths, and most people think that 95% at least are forgeries, and the other 5% aren't. So all of the main divisions within Islam are arguments over which are the real Hadiths and which are the fake Hadiths. So even... um, this is especially true between the Shiites and the Sunnis, which is some, something we'll talk more about, the difference between these groups, um, their theological beliefs in just a minute and, but anyway and we're going to come back to this in a second, the div, we'll get back to the division of, or the argument over which are the true Hadiths and which are the fake ones in just a second um, now, historically Islam is taken all of these rules and practices that the Qur'an prescribes, and then all of the things that are prescribed in the Hadith as well, so it's almost kind of like scripture and tradition, but their version, they take them as well, and then what they've done is they sort of take all the rules and they put them, put them together in these law codes for every Muslim to follow, and this is what's called Sharia law. So it's basically Sharia law is trying to take all of the practices prescribed in the Quran and Hadith and actually make it the law. It's kind of like if in the United States if we were a Catholic country and they were to take all of the rules of Catholicism and make it the legal code. Um, And this is part of the Islamic tradition of trying to unite the political and the religious together. This is what we talked about last week, about how Islam is traditionally a territory and religion at the same time. And there's this union of sort of church, or, or was a mosque and state, that the idea of separating the two is completely foreign. And so, anyway, however, if there's a vast dispute over which are the true Hadiths and which are the fake Hadiths, there is a vast dispute in Sharia law over, well, which are the true rules that are prescribed and which are the fake ones. So if you've ever heard about Islam having vast amounts of infighting and having more divisions than Protestantism, it's because there is so much argument over which are the real hadiths and therefore which are the real rules to follow and which ones are the fake rules to follow. So this is traditionally these are called the schools of Islamic jurisprudence um, because they're the schools of okay we one like i said one believes that these are the real hadiths and they make say that these are the laws that should be made and another says these are real hadiths and therefore these are the laws that should be made and they and the islamic world is divided for the most part into four main schools um it, well i should say the sunni world is and the sunnis make up 85 percent of all muslims in the world so the Sunnis have their main schools, what are called the Hanafi, the Hanbali, the Maliki, and the Shafi'i, And this is one of the reasons why the Muslims are always killing each other, is because they believe different things, and they don't like each other almost as much as they don't like Christians. And then the Shiites have their own schools, and we'll get more into why that is in just a second. Um, now, this is important because when one wants to look at what's considered, we say, like orthodox Islamic teaching, um, as well as what's the orthodox Islamic understanding of the Quran, so if you're wanting to know, like, all right, how, was the be- how are you actually supposed to interpret verses in the Quran, that the best place to look, and under Islamic law, is you look at the teachings of these four main schools because they have, over the centuries, written down commentaries that are basically binding upon. Depending on which school you are, if you're a member of the Hanafi school, the critiques or the commentaries by the Hanafi school are sort of binding upon the interpretation of the Quran. So if you want to know how the Quran really is to be interpreted, what a verse really means, you can look at what was written by these schools. Now, this is a little bit of a side note, but if you ever see sort of debates with modern... Muslim apologists, one of the things that they try to do is they try to present sort of a softer side to Islam. And one of the ways they do that is they try to downplay the the history of Sharia law because Sharia law is very harsh. Um, I mean, you just have to look at um, the law in places like Saudi Arabia where if you commit a lot of laws, they just chop your head off with a sword because the the Quran says to do so stoning, I mean there's, a, there's very hard the Sharia law is very harsh and they like to try to, Muslim apologists like to try to downplay this and one of the ways that they do that is that they try to juxtapose Islamic mysticism that's called Sufism with the harsh Sharia law but what, one thing that's important to remember about this um, idea of Sufism, Islamic mysticism is that it's, well first of all it's not a sect but is rather just an aspect of Islam. There aren't these, basically these groups that call themselves Sufis. It's just there's Muslims that practice mysticism. And however, also, this is an idea that was a sort of a cross-pollination with Eastern Christianity, that one should try and develop a deep communion with God through prayer and meditation. Now, um, So, like I said, Sufism does not stand as a sect that somehow opposes or restrains Sharia law, as many modern Muslim apologists try to claim. And then also, Sufism is always traditionally a really minor aspect of Islam that, even to this day, is actually people that practice it are widely persecuted across the Islamic world Um, because, overwhelmingly, the idea of spiritual communion with God has not had any place within Islam. And and actually many Islamic, um, I guess they're not theologians, have argued that even such an idea is rather actually blasphemous. And so um, most Muslims, their lives focus on the external rules, not on any idea of communion with God. And here's an interesting fact for you that, on the right, those are what's called whirling dervishes, and I've always heard the phrase whirling dervish, and I never knew what a whirling dervish is, but it's a, someone that practiced Sufism, and they use these hypnotic whirling dance um, while they meditate, so there you go. If you already knew that, then you knew more than I did. Now, uh, before going any further, this is sort of a, more of a side note than anything, that because I had to fit it in somewhere and it didn't naturally fit in anywhere and that is we're going to go into the theological differences between the Sunnis and the Shiites Um, that last week we learned about how historically this division arose and how the Shiites originally were the followers of Ali and his family, the fourth caliph and the Sunnis were the followers of the rival Umayyad family when they had that civil war and at first, this started out as a political dispute, but because, remember, the union of politics and religion in Islam, that over time, differences of belief and practice arose as well. Now, Ali was Muhammad's closest male relative. This is something we talked about last week. And the Shiites believed that only descendants of Muhammad and his relatives were, could be rightful caliphs, rightful leaders of Islam. Therefore, they didn't believe that the other caliphs that followed and ruled the, the main Islamic world were valid. They had their own caliphs, their own leaders that they thought were the true leaders of Islam that they called the Imams. And they had 12 of them. Now, and all of them had descended from Muhammad. And likewise, they have their own schools of jurisprudence, when we go back into those Hadiths and Sharia law, because they don't think that the Hadiths written by those first three Caliphs that we learned about last week, of Abu Bakr, Uthman, and Omar, that they were valid Hadiths, because they didn't think they were valid Caliphs. But they do believe that those twelve Imams that they had, that all their sayings and writings are valid Hadiths, and therefore is binding as the Quran as well. Now, one of the main things that they also believe is an idea called, um, what's called the 12th Imam, or the hidden Imam, sometimes called the Al-Mahdi. And what this idea is, is they believe that there was 12 Imams, successors of Muhammad, and that the last one, whose name was Al-Mahdi, that Allah took him from earth, and took him and put him into hiding. And the idea is, they believe that at the end of time, Al-Mahdi will come back, actually alongside Jesus... And in order to revive the true message of Islam and what's called the great occultation, and so they, like I said, so they believe in like the coming of the Mahdi, um, in, in sort of their second coming. And in the meantime, well, they think that that real caliph, the fourth Imam al Mahdi, is up in heaven with Allah, that they think that their community is led by what are called Ayatollahs. And what they are is they are basically like the vicar of the almighty here on Earth. That they speak, they have sort of this divine connection that they're able to speak for the Almaty. Um And this is why actually the Shiites, they have sort of a religious hierarchy and then they have this idea of the Ayatollah as sort of the head of the Shiites that's able to, ha- as the vicar of the Mahdi that there is sort of this loose... Um, parallel between the Catholic Church structure that's why sometimes people refer to them as like the Catholic Muslims because of that um, now it's very strange but for some reason amongst grassroots grassroot, not loot root Sunni they, the, the idea of the Mahdi coming again is actually really popular there too and this makes absolutely no sense because they don't believe that the Mahdi was a, the actual leader of Islam but they think it's some sort of like neat idea So it's become popular, evidence of the fact how little they actually know of their own history and their own religion. Um, But anyway. Now, um, so, we've gone through the bird's eye view of the basic beliefs and practices they have to do. we talked about the where the source is the doctrine we've talked about this, the Sunnis and the Shiites now what I want to do is start going through some of the various Islamic teachings as they are presented in the Quran hadith, Hadiths and then affirmed by those four main schools of Islamic jurisprudence and specifically I want to look at various places that Islamic belief corresponds with Catholicism but also the ways in which it wildly differs um, then we can look at several as several different Islamic practices as prescribed in the Quran and Hadith that naturally outflow from the the worldview of these beliefs. So, the first topic I want to look at is a very common idea. And this is the idea of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam sharing beliefs in a common heritage and leading to sometimes being called the three great Abrahamic faiths. Now, um, for instance, what, this is something that people always think like, okay, well, what do they, Muslims and Christians and Jews have in common? They all, they, sh- most people think they sort of share the beliefs of like the Old Testament. Um, most people think that the Muslims actually accept the Old Testament just as much as the Christians and the Jews, and that they also, um, and that they have this shared respect for Abraham. And so, I want to start going through these now. The Second Vatican Council, and as well as the Catechism of the Catholic Church, they sort of um, touch on this when they say that Muslims profess to hold the faith of Abraham. Now, it's an important distinction to notice that it doesn't say that Muslims do hold the faith of Abraham. It says that they profess to hold the faith of Abraham. Um, But what exactly does this mean? Um, The idea of them holding the Faith of Abraham, what they profess, and you can see this idea of them professing the whole of the faith of Abraham in the Quran. That one of the famous things is the Quran refers to the Christians, the Jews, and the Muslims as the people of the book, and it to sort of separate the idea of them from the polytheists and the Hindus and all the other religions. That those monotheist ones they call the people of the book. Now, this is kind of a misnomer. Um, because if if you want to look at those three different religions, the only ones that you could actually call the people of the book would be Muslims, because, and by the book they mean the Quran, not the Bible. The Jews, you could call the people of the law or the Torah, and Christians you would have to call the people of the word, meaning... um, the including the entirety of revealed truth, included in the written word of the Bible, the living tradition of the Church, as well as most especially in the person of Jesus Christ, the Word incarnate. Um, but anyway, so like I said, most Christians commonly mistakenly believe that the Jews, Muslims, and Christians equally accept the authority of the Old Testament, and that so the idea is that most people believe is that Islam was is just basically another layer that added itself to the other two religions without going back and changing the source material. Now, if for a Catholic that was opening the Quran for the first time, you might actually be tempted to think this, as there's actually a whole lot of biblical material in the Quran, And the Quran has loose plagiarisms from the Old Testament, as well as a bunch from the New Testament. And the reason for this is, is that the Quran teaches that God really did reveal himself to these characters in the Old Testament and the New Testament. But what they believe is that God told them the true message of Islam, but then those perfidious Jews and Christians messed up the message. And so what the Quran does is it takes those same stories and it retells them in the proper way as they really happened. Um, so they all have a slightly different, have different twists on them that actually have important effects, which we'll go through, because I want to go through and just point out a few of the main stories that are in the Quran and the Bible and how the Quran changes them, though there's a whole lot more stories, but we don't have time to get into all of them, I just want to point out a few of the main ones. So, first one I want to go through is the story of Adam and Eve, that, um, One of the most important aspects of the creation story in the Bible is the idea of Adam and Eve being made in the image and likeness of God. Now, in the Quran, when it tells the creation story, it has different details. It is very important that it never mentions that Adam and Eve were made in the image and likeness of God. Now... um, in this strange sort of weird scene, the angels bow down, that all that makes the angels bow down to Adam and Eve, but it never explains why. And it, but it, the fact that it's missing this being made in the image and likeness of God is extremely important because as the blessed John Paul II stated in his encyclical Evangelium Vitae, that the only thing that gives absolute value to human life is the fact that man is made in the image of God. So, by, when you're missing that, that is going to have very important consequences on your view on the importance of human life. Um, second of all, that in the Quranic story, it, Adam and Eve, they, um, I want to lose track of where I am. Oh, yeah. That is important. One thing is they also don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Another important thing is that they eat from the tree of eternity. Now, this is important because as the Navarra Bible explains, and I'm going to read a quote from it, that the fact that man had access to the tree of knowledge of good and evil means that God left the way open to the possibility of evil in order to ensure greater good, the freedom that is man's endowment. By using his reason and following his conscience, man is able to discern what is good and what is evil, but he himself cannot make something good or evil. Now, this is important because in Islam, the idea of reason, free will, and discernment are completely denied. And and so, instead of being tempted with the prospect of moral awareness, Adam and Eve are just tempted with everlasting life. And the end result is God banishes on the earth. So, uh, so, um, Eden, there you go, was this somewhere it wasn't even on earth it was somewhere like up in the heavens and another important aspect is that in the story in the Quran, there is no concept of original sin if, in consequences uh, for and uh, punishments for this and this is why the, uh, the idea of being able to build heaven on earth of the kingdom of God here on earth is not completely foreign to Islam and this goes back to explaining that tying together of religion and politics um, the reason that we don't tie together religion and politics too closely in Christianity is because we believe we never can build heaven here on earth um, while the Muslims do think that's pop- do not, they do think that's possible because of no original sin now another story we'll skip over Noah and go to Moses is a story of Moses and the Exodus and this the account also has many alterations from that in Christianity. So for instance, when Moses performs his miracles, um, one they have the story like of the staff being thrown down and turned into a snake. that interestingly, in the story, um, it says that Pharaohs, um, his sorcerers, they're so impressed by um, Moses' magic that they become Muslims which is interesting since Muslims aren't around yet, and that it also is important that when the Bible um, states that talks about the plagues happening in Egypt, that the Bible states that these happen because of the Egyptians were a proud and sinful people, proud and sinful in quotations from the Bible. And then in an almost exact passage um, in the Quran, they change it from being a proud and sinful people to saying it's because they were an ignorant people. Now this is important because in Islam God doesn't so much send his prophets to save people from sin but from ignorance. And that has huge implications when you're talking about a moral framework which we're going to get to in a little bit. And then also in the story of Moses you get to see some of the really sloppy confusion of biblical details as well as historical ones such as the fact that the Quran multiple times... um, refers to Moses as Jesus' uncle... and the reason of this is... is that Miriam, Jesus' sister... is the same name in Hebrew as Mary... and so they got the two confused... so Miriam and Mary... and they thought they were the same person... so it talks about Jesus' uncles of Moses and Aaron... Um, forget the fact they lived a couple thousand years apart from each other... now... so we've gone through those... but what about Abraham... Who is always seen as the sort of father of faith of all three religions. And now, and the Quran does speak very favorably of Abraham. And here's a little quote, and it says that who actually Abraham, who they be, that the Arab people traditionally believed themselves to be a descendant of Abraham through Ishmael. And it actually has the story. They have a similar so they try to elevate the position of Ishmael in the Koran so the story the sacrifice instead of sacrificing Isaac is the sacrifice of Ishmael um, but also showing the favor that they showed Abraham quote from the Quran: it says and who is there that has a fair religion than he who submits his will to God being a good doer and who follows the creed of Abraham a man of pure faith and God took Abraham for a friend so it refers to Abraham as a man of pure faith now it's interesting though when you look at the context of referring to Abraham as a man of pure faith. that, And to go back a little bit, most Christians, like I said, they commonly think that this elevated position for Abraham is the exact same across all three religions. And for one place you only have to look is that you can look at talks from both President Obama and as well as President Bush that when they, they both publicly praised Muslims for their, this is quote from the talk from President Obama, their shared roots of the world's Abrahamic faith, and Oba, but Obama must have been assuming that the Islamic account of Abraham shared the sort of same expansive and generous vision of the, well, the biblical one. Does it keep flashing? All right, that keeps throwing me off and distracting me. All right, one of the... Um, Anyway, the idea of the biblical account of God blessing all nations of the earth because of Abraham and by the means of of Abraham's immense faith. So, however, the Quran, when it praises Abraham's faith, it means something very different when you look at the actual context. So, where that praise comes from, it comes right after this passage right here. When Abraham says to his pagan relatives, We are quit of you and that you serve apart from God. We disbelieve in you, and between us and you, enmity has shown itself, and hatred forever, until you believe in God alone. So, Abraham is only a model of emulation when he declares his enmity and hatred further than non-Muslims. And in the same passage, right after that, Abraham asks pardon for his father, and then this is presented as being a shameful act, as the one shameful act of Abraham, so like I said Abraham's hatred of non-Muslims is what is presented as exemplary faith while his prayers for forgiveness are presented as shameful um, which is far different than Christian understanding so this is why Vatican II states that they only profess to hold the faith of Abraham not that they actually do now if you get on into the New Testament that there is very similar stories as well, they they talk about Jesus quite a bit, though they're going to change some of the important parts, now, um, so for instance, don't want to lose track of myself, Yeah. so for instance Jesus is presented and this is as a model to follow and this is something that Muslim apologists always like to point out like hey we believe in Jesus too um, that he is presented as a model to follow but not as the son of God instead Jesus is presented as just sort of a prophet to preach the coming of the greatest prophet Muhammad He's sort of, his role is kind of like that of John the Baptist and like the Gnostics before them the Quran also teaches that Jesus wasn't really crucified. Uh, and because that would have been too ignoble a fate for a prophet of God. So instead, what it says is that Jesus looked for a lookalike to take his place. And so, and here's a quote, that who volunteers to be made to look like me, for which he will be my companion in paradise. And so there's different tradition of who was crucified in his place Um, some some Hadiths say that it was Thomas who was called the twin others actually say it was Judas that he made to look like him and so Judas is who died on the cross and anyway but this makes Jesus sound an awful lot like the leaders of those of various Islamic terrorist groups that send misguided young men to go blow themselves up but without ever actually endangering themselves Um, now Interestingly I probably say interestingly way too much because there is a lot of interesting stuff. That the Quran also has does present an elevated role for Mary, and it does actually proclaim both the Immaculate Conception as well as the virgin birth. And in Islamic tradition, Mary is second only to Muhammad's daughter Fatima in honor of all women throughout history. And there's a really interesting article that I got this week about from Archbishop Fulton Sheen. Um, I'm sorry, before I move on, this guy just looks like he's having way too much fun. Um, <laughs> anyway, um, but by, by Archbishop Fulton Sheen that was fascinating. When he goes through and he argues that he believes that someday God will convert all of the Muslims to Christianity and to Christ through their... Um, their honor of Mary, and this is one of the reasons he argues why Mary revealed herself at Fatima to give hope um, of this fact and when he points out that the town of Fatima was actually named after a Muslim princess who, when the Muslims they had at one point controlled all of Portugal, and when the Christians drove them out of Portugal, that the last Muslim chieftain, his daughter, who was named Fatima, that she stayed behind and married. A christian and became a christian and they named the town after her in her honor and so interestingly when they took the the statue of our lady of fatima the missionary statue and they took it around the world and they took it to different muslim countries like india and north africa muslims came out in hundreds of thousands um, to show devotion to our lady of fatima so interesting So, I'll not say interesting again. So, Fulton Sheen argues that a good missionary strategy for the Muslims would be the preaching of Our Lady of Fatima. Now, so, um, we've gone through, we've seen how they don't entirely follow what we call the Abrahamic faith, but another important topic is the question of whether or not Muslims actually worship the same god. That this is, uh, most people think like, oh, Muslims, Christians, Jews, they all worship the same God. It's all basically kind of equal, and you get sort of this relativistic view. Now, and it is important, though, that the Vatican II document, Lumen Gentium, which is a dogmatic constitution of an ecumenical council, and therefore is binding on Catholics, does state that um, Muslims do, in fact, worship the same God. With the quote, along with uh, that, Muslims, along with us, adore the One and Merciful God, who on the last day will judge mankind. So, because they do worship the One True God, however, just because they worship the One True, true God does not mean that they have the correct view of Him or that they share um, the Christian understanding of that God. And actually, an interesting thing is you can say that the Jews have an incomplete view of God because they don't believe in the fullness of God's revelation and then Muslims have both an incomplete view of God and then a distorted view of God on top of that and um, so first of all Muslims do not, since they don't believe that Jesus was the son of God or the savior of the world they don't believe that God is triune and the Quran actually several times explicitly denies the doctrine of the trinity although it never actually states it accurately instead Christians are rebuked in the Quran as a false uh, um, for falsely attempting to worship Allah, Jesus and Mary as three gods. So the trinity instead they forget the Holy Spirit. It's in the Quran, it's Jesus, Mary and Allah. It's sort of like a trio of deities. So that's one aspect that they get wrong. And then Another important aspect that is very essential is the idea of God as father is completely foreign and in fact blasphemous to Islam and the reason of this is that the Quran talks about this and it blasts the idea of God being a father because there's this inability to separate the idea of divine fatherhood from physical terms so the idea that God obviously can't be a physical father they take as meaning that God, calling God as father is completely absurd now so to a pious mu- Muslim a prayer like our father would be utterly alien and even presumptuous to the point of blasphemy and so instead of being a father God is just the master of the universe and humans are his slaves so instead of the idea of chil- the father and children as the Christian relationship it's master and slave and That's why Islam just means literally submission. And this is why the hallmark of Islamic religious observance is external obedience, not likeness with the divine through interior transformation. Now, second important aspect of their view of God that has important consequences has to do with their idea of free will. And that Islam completely denies all free will. And they believe in a very sort of Calvinist idea of basically double predestination. And this is the idea that no one can believe in Allah without Allah first actively willing that they do so, but also no one can disbelieve in Allah without Allah actively willing that they do so. And here's a good verse from the Quran that sort of shows this idea with, and to whom... Sorry, And to whomsoever God assigned no light, no light has he. And so, like I said, this is the idea that God predetermines and predestines some people from heaven, but he also makes some people that he predetermines and predestines to send to hell. And similar to John Calvin's idea. Now, ultimately though, the problem with this idea, and this is something... Next week, we're going to be starting the Reformation. If you come back, we'll get into this. Is that without free will, man ultimately has no moral culpability. That evil ultimately is the fault of God. But the Quran, after it states that, it always makes sure to say that even though man has absolutely no free will, he will still be held accountable for the things that he does. Um, So that's what actually fit pretty well. And anyway this is a pretty sinister idea because it makes God sort of arbitrary and unloving and is pretty hard to reconcile with the idea of a just and loving God now one of the most important aspects that we'll spend a little bit longer on with their view of God is the idea that Muslims deny sorry they deny the idea that God has an eternal nature and instead they believe that God is nothing but pure will so the christian understanding of god is the idea that goodness truth and beauty um are absolute reflections of the superlative nature of god so that god has this nature that he that is the definition of those things that he himself cannot even break so god cannot choose to be evil because he cannot violate his own nature um but muslims say that to say that God is a nature that he himself cannot violate would be somehow to diminish his sovereignty because God can do anything. Therefore, Islam argues that morality is decided simply by the will of God, not by God's eternal nature. And, therefore, if God had willed a different morality, then that could have been okay too. Um, so, for instance, if God had decided that evil was good and good is evil, he could have done that at his, as well. Now, this is important, um, and actually this is an idea called nominalism, which we'll also get into the Reformation next year, because the same idea was also very influential on Martin Luther. Um, But this is important because... Morality is not absolute in the Islamic view, and this is something we'll get into. It's because it doesn't reflect God's eternal nature. It's basically based upon God's arbitrary will, which ultimately God could change at any time. And in fact, in the Quran, He does change at any time. Now, this is also important in why, for instance, the scientific revolution never happened in the Islamic world. Because of the fact, the, the scientific revolution and the Western idea of science is a natural outgrowth of this idea of God having an immutable nature. And so the idea of, of divine consistency that God has a nature that he can't violate and likewise creation reflects that principle and it was all important to the idea of scientific inquiry that we can trust that, that nature is going to make sense that it's going to be consistent but in a very good book on this if this is your thing is there's a very good book that explains why that science rose in the west and not in the Islamic world and this book is called The Rise of Early Modern Science Islam China and the West by a guy named Toby E. Huff published by Cambridge University Press back when Cambridge published good things and where he argues this exact same thing And so, for the Islamic culture, however, to affirm that God's creation operates according to immutable principles would actually be nothing sort of blasphemy. And so this is why Allah can actually contradict himself in Islam and in the Quran. And here's a good verse showing this from the Quran. And for whatever verse we abrogate or cast into oblivion, we bring a better or the like of it. Knowest thou not that God is powerful over everything? This is chapter 2, verse 106. And this is something we'll get into in a little bit later. This is the beginning of a teaching called abrogation. That whenever God contradicts himself in the Quran, um, when one verse completely contradicts another, that whichever one later just replaces the one that came first. Now, These false understandings of God, and especially this last one, have important consequences on Islamic practices. So, if God's nature is not absolute, then ultimately morality is not absolute either. There is a basic moral framework in Go back I completely forgot to mention with Moses that this ties in with this as well. That the story of the 10 commandments is presented also in the Quran, but it never actually says what the 10 commandments are. There's no list that says these are the Ten Commandments. And this ties up the idea like, oh, there is morality, you are supposed to follow it, but it's not absolute. So there's always, thou shall not, but is basically um, the idea in the Islamic worldview. And we'll go through this sort of one by one of these, uh, um, yeah, these uh, thou shall not buts. Now, and the first of these we can talk about is with the idea of jihad that um, the Quran um, teaches that the taking of innocent life is wrong but then goes on to provide exceptions so it's, in, it's the idea of thou shalt not murder unless and so this ties in with the idea of jihad that um, originally that Jihad was used in the Quran to mean just sort of the interior struggle the something we talked about last week for the mastery of self but in contradiction that comes later on after they've already stated that um, taking of innocent life is wrong it gets sort of flipped on its head and it's taken to mean violent warfare against non-Muslims and the best place to see that this, that this case is in the life of Muhammad who we went through last week um, because remember we said how Muhammad is upheld as the perfect example of how all Muslims are to follow. That, anyway, in the life of Muhammad, one needs to just look and see that he was not some sort of peaceful, sagacious prophet, but rather a petty warlord who brutally attacked and conquered his enemies in the name of Islam. And actually the best place to see this is from an actually Islamic source that there's a great tr- translation uh, by a guy named, I don't know how to pronounce it very well, A. Guliam, if you ever actually want to, if you actually are interested in reading these things and want me to tell you afterwards, I'm more than happy to. But anyway, it's a translation of this Islamic, the most famous Islamic historian of all time who lived in the Middle Ages, a guy named Ibn Ishak. Um, he wrote, basically, A Life of Muhammad, the most famous biography of Muhammad, in almost every single page. Just shows the brutal nature of of Muhammad, and it completely wipes away the myth of the whitewash, um, peaceful Muhammad that as he's presented nowadays. Now, furthermore, that the Quran also counsel, counsels war and jihad, and the second form of jihad. And I'm just going to read you a series of quotes. And it's because it is a simple fact that the Qur'an advocates war against unbelievers, a.k.a. Christians and Jews. So, first quote is, O prophet, strive hard, or an Arabic jihadi, against the unbelievers and the hypocrites, and be firm against them. Their abode is hell, an evil refuge indeed. Chapter 9, verse 73. Another one, when you meet the unbelievers in the battlefield, strike off their heads... And when you have laid them low, bind your captives firmly. Chapter 47, verse 4. Next one is, Those who believe fight, or the word used is jihadi, in the cause of Allah. And those who reject faith fight in the cause of evil. So, fight ye against the friends of Satan. Chapter 4, verse 76. And then another is, Allah hath purchased of the believers their persons and their goods. And for theirs is the garden of paradise. They fight in his cause, jihadi, and slay and are slain. Chapter 9, verse 11. And the last one is, this is famous, but it's called the verse of the sword from chapter 9, verse 5. When it says, Then when the sacred months have passed, slay the idolaters wherever you find them. Take them captive and besiege them and pre- prepare for them each ambush. But if they repent and establish worship... And pay the poor due. Then leave their way free Lo, Allah is forgiving merciful. Um, now interestingly. Jihad is not just recommended. But it's actually presented as the highest duty. Of all Muslims. When it, in another verse when it says. Do ye make the giving of drink to pilgrims. Or the maintenance of the sacred mosque equal to the pious service of those who believe in Allah and the last day and strive with might and main in the cause of Allah. In the Arabic there is jihad fi sabi'l Allah. They are not comparable in the sight of Allah. Those who believe and suffer exile and strive with might and main, jihad fi sabi'l Allah, with their goods and their persons have the highest rank in the sight of Allah. They are the people who will achieve salvation. Now, one may attempt to spiritualize these verses... But this is why we started with the history last week, because the historical record sort of speaks for itself. And then also, if you look at those four schools of Islamic jurisprudence, that all four of them affirmed historically that those verses are all to be taken literally. Now, so this is showing an example of, so there is this idea of peace, of not killing, but since there's no moral absolutes, it's okay to have the exceptions. Now... And likewise, an important concept, which I said we'd come back to, that of abrogation, that there are plenty of um, peaceful verses in the Quran. And this is something you always hear on TV. They're saying, well, the Quran is a very peaceful book. Um, and But the interesting thing is that the Quran is not arranged chronologically, but for the most part, by the length of the chapters or the surahs. And so, um, and the tolerant verses in the Quran all came from Muhammad's, Time in Mecca when he was um, simply preaching, trying to convert the Meccans to Islam. And then the later verses came from his time in Medina when he and became increasingly violent and intolerant. And so with the Islamic idea of abrogation is the idea that The later the verse comes, it cancels out the contradictory verses that came first. So, for instance, that verse of the sword, Dian 5, is actually one of the very last parts added to the Quran. So, according to Islamic jurisprudence and their interpretation of the Quran, it cancels out every single other tolerant verse before. Now, um, and so am I just sort of cherry picking um, verses? Um, to make Islam look violent? And the answer is no. Well, maybe a little bit. No. No. The, the, in fact, the unpleasant fact is that violent jihad warfare against unbelievers is not a heretical idea in Islam. But it, it historically is... So actually nowadays we always talk... You always hear... Sorry to go back. It's talking about like the violent jihadists as being like this little tiny minority that have hijacked a peaceful religion. But if you look historically, they're the orthodox ones. Um, and anyway... Um, and this has constantly been, like I said, reaffirmed throughout history of Islamic jurisprudence and Quranic commentary. And it's true of all four of the main Sunni schools of jurisprudence. Now, likewise, it's not just with warfare that you start, you see this muddling of morality, but another place you see this is even like lying and stealing so for instance the Quran is very clear when it says that to steal from a fellow Muslim if you do so you forfeit your hand but it's okay to steal from non-Muslims and in particular when it states that Allah promises the vast riches and booty to the Muslims when they conquer their enemies so that they are it's perfectly fine to take all the stuff of the Christians and the Jews and likewise lying is condemned and at multiple times of the Quran it says that we're supposed to tell the truth However, unless it is in the case of advancing the cause of Islam. Now, and another big one that will, this is the last main part, they'll have multiple parts to it that we'll get into, is the idea of a shared sexual ethic. That lot, this is a very popular idea amongst even very Orthodox Catholics that we think, hey, opposed to the secular culture that we can look for an ally on, for instance, the idea of having a big family and the idea of standing against abortion, that the Muslims would actually stand as a sort of a good ally. So, for instance, with, like I said, fornication, adultery, the sanctity of marriage, the importance of bearing children, um, in all such areas, Catholics believe, commonly believe, that Catholic and Muslim moral teaching is basically identical. Um, but once again, they are not. There are some serious important differences that we can go through. Um, furthermore, Islamic morality does allow for some practices that are completely abhorrent to Catholics, such as we'll get to, such as contraception, child marriage, polygamy, female genital mutilation, and even sexual slavery of non-believing women. Islam teachings on women and sexuality appeal to the worst in man, and this is um, in, summed up pretty well in a quote by John, President John Quincy Adams. That this is a snippet of his quote, but when he states that the essence of Muhammad's doctrine was violence and lust to exalt the brutal over the spiritual part of human nature. And this brutal lust has done much to de- dehumanize and subjugate women in the Islamic world. Um, something that does not always get a whole lot of press. Um, one thing in particular that um, Catholics always at least say, well, at least Muslims are against abortion. But that is not entirely true either. That um, Islam teaches that killing, actually, in the Quran states that the killing of one's children is a very evil thing to do. And, but, however, the Islamic idea is that God, God breathes the soul into the baby at the end of the first trimester. So, under Islamic law, abortion is actually permitted for, if necessary, in the first trimester. Um, Second of all, um, with the idea of contraception, Muslims do stand firm against some direct forms of contraception, such as like sterilization for non-medical reasons, but Islam does not Um, forbid contraception in fact Muhammad approves of it several times in the different hadiths um, very explicitly and in kind of gross terms and um, and in Islam there is no idea of the inseparability of the unitive and procreative aspects of the marital act and this is extremely important because this very fact Accounts for the moral sexual ambiguity in the Islamic world and is, in fact, the same reason for the moral sexual ambiguity um, that is in the West that's followed the sexual revolution. And because the idea is that by the se- of the unitive and procreative aspects leads is what leads to the dehumanization of women because it turns women into nothing but objects of pleasure. And this is something we see both in the Islamic cultures as well, more recently, in our own. Now, this is one of the things that led to the practice, for instance, of polygamy in the Islamic world, which the Quran states that men can have as many as four wives except for muhammad who got as many as he wanted and this once again continues to reduce women to the status of mere commodities and in the islamic world also for instance divorce um it is very easy to divorce your wife in fact all a man has for for a man that all he has to do is say i divorce you and then wait three months to make sure she's not pregnant and then then she is divorced um and it's a longer process that's more difficult if a woman wants to. But um, now, an interesting fact is that in the Western world, while we've lost our moral, let um, say, philosophical ability to argue um, for standards of a sexual ethic, so we're not able to argue for instance very well nowadays philosophically against gay marriage and things like that there is still vestiges of when you look at when you have two thousand years of christian heritage that there there is these vestiges of christian morality that just get sort of ingrained in the culture so ideas for instance like pedophilia are abhorrent to the west even though we can't come up with a good philosophical reason why However, it is an important thing to remember, too, that the Islamic cultures of the East, they do not have that 2,000 years of Christian culture um, backing their uh, morality. So, when you add the fact that they, too, philosophically cannot um, argue against these practices, but then you add the fact that their heritage actually was formed more by the hedonistic practices of the East and Persia, that this explains why you end up with all sorts of practices like widespread child pornography this is like for instance whenever they when they killed osama bin laden they found child pornography all over his computer like you this is one of the breakdowns like when our soldiers go over to afghanistan there's been a lot of articles about we have a real hard time dealing with the afghanis because for instance just pedophilia is considered just a foible that everybody does and our soldiers who aren't may not be Christian they find this completely abhorrent and so they have a hard time getting along and so like I said when you have a religion that is not able to provide concrete morality um, and that's what you end up with and another couple aspects of this is for instance the practice of child marriage that in Islam you look at Muhammad as the example for all things and Muhammad married his wife Aisha when she was six years old and as we stated last week, don't worry, she didn't consummate the marriage until she was nine. And therefore, for instance, in Iran, the legal age for a girl to get married is nine, following Muhammad's example. And in, for instance, in 2002, in a study by UNICEF um, at refugee camps in Afghanistan, in one camp, two-thirds of the second-grade girls were either married or engaged. And the other thing is the Quran also permits sex slaves captured in battle, as long as they're not Muslims. And the Shiites also practice something called temporary marriage, or basically marriage with a deadline, which is just a fig leaf of morality placed upon prostitution. Um, And, anyway, the reason I'm pointing these things out is, like I said, is to show... How, when God becomes pure arbitrary will, the standards of morality become blurred, and why we need to be careful when talking to Muslims about whether or not they worship the same God to be clear about the very real and very important differences um, in our understandings of God. And the idea is that all morality ultimately flows from our understanding of God and our worldview. And those differences have tremendous consequences. Now this ties in with the idea of, for instance, of what ecumenism really means. That there is a common idea nowadays that ecumenism means that we gloss over all the differences um, between us and other religions. Because the idea is if you speak, um, that we think that this, to point out truth is somehow uncharitable. Um, that it's somehow disparaging of the human being, which is not. Um, it's just pointing out truth. And the so the idea of true ecumenism is in the words of Saint Paul, like speaking the truth with love, and um, trying to call um, others to dialogue, and not, like I said, not to gloss over the truth, but to point it out. Constantly praying that all men will eventually be united in the truth of Christ, um, which is ultimately found in the Catholic Church.